0: Lord, as we come into your presence, we are seeking your spirit to be our teacher, to touch our hearts, to prepare us to receive what it is that we need on this Sabbath day, to strengthen, to encourage, to challenge, to warn. I pray now for your spirit to be upon all those that are listening. I pray for your spirit to be upon me as we realize we are the actors on the stage So bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm coming to you with a message entitled COVID-19, the end of the beginning, and I want to explain to you why this is my subject matter this morning. I have had at least two engagements now in the last week or two in regards to conspiracy theories and documents that either have predicted or have been planned for an implementation to take away our freedoms and to make something of a crisis such as what we're in for the demise of all that we hold near and dear and special. While I would not be surprised If elements of these different points of reference, uh, one of them scientific, one of them political, uh, I cannot for a moment uh, leave God's people in a position or a posture where fear. And focusing on the wrong thing, and this is probably the main thing this morning, it is focusing on the wrong thing that could actually look like it's the right action and make sure we're unready for what is coming. So this morning, having encountered these two different conspiracy theories, I want to take a moment and study the Word of God and make sure we understand where we are in Bible prophecy. We sing a song, Look for the waymarks. The question that I think is in many people's minds, Christian, -Christian, non-Christian, Seventh-day Adventist, non-Seventh-day Adventist. By the way, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and today I will be referencing from the writings of a woman by the name of Ellen White in a disproportionate measure. I make no embarrassing uh, apologies for this. Indeed, we believe as a people that as the darkness deepens on the earth, that we will be in need of a living presence, prophetically, and that that prophecy, that ability to discern where we are, the ability to predict where things are going, is not a gift that God has left His church without the benefit of having. So, praise God for the 66 books of the Bible. We're thankful for that. This morning, I will also be referencing to what we believe is a lesser light, but nonetheless light for these dark moments. Are we right on the cusp of the implosion of freedom and liberty, the destruction of religious freedom, and the coming of our Lord? Conspiracy theories. Let's just take a moment and think about a few of those that come to us from the Bible. Probably one of the first conspiracy theories that are recorded in Scripture is that of Joseph and his brothers. They had come to really disdain this young man, favorite of his father wearing his coat of many colors. And on that fateful day when he has gone in search of his older brothers to find out where they're at, they decide that they will kill him. Fortunately, cooler heads prevail. Reuben discourages from this. Judah goes along with it. They throw him down in a pit. What they enact after that is a secret information plot against their father that will never tell them the truth, tell him the truth, at least they don't intend for that to happen. It was a plan worked out without the understanding of their dad which caused him untold suffering, years of grief and sadness. When I think about the experience of God's people in Israel or in Egypt, take your Bibles and turn if you would to the book of Genesis. It could be considered quite a conspiracy, I would suggest, if it was playing out in modern times. Genesis chapter 47. This is the experience of Joseph, who is now second in power, only superseded by Pharaoh. Genesis chapter 47, verse 20. Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to another. If this was playing out today, Joseph would be quite the antagonist to the experience of freedom. As a matter of fact, in the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, this comment is made. This transaction by which, at a single stroke of business, Joseph the Hebrew was said to have purchased for Pharaoh the whole land of Egypt and all the people to be Pharaoh's slaves as the price of seed corn probably sounded in the ears of an ancient Oriental people as a masterpiece of cleverness. But in our day, it would rank as an outrageous piece of tyranny that the king's grand vizier taking advantage of his own monopoly and corn in corn and the people's destitution should deprive them of the last shreds of their independence. I want us to think about the lenses we're looking through and the objects we're focusing on. It's not too much farther down the road in Exodus chapter 1 that we find that Pharaoh himself is in a position of attempting to make certain that the Hebrews cannot become conquerors in this land of Egypt when i think about daniel and and i shall not leave there without making this comment god understood the great scope and movement of salvation history he could foresee and he foreallowed for the enslavement of his people There would be no watchman on the wall sufficient to undo the general movement of history and time in the subjugation of God's people. It was the natural trending of the laws of Satan carried out in a political and geopolitical place that would also represent in the deliverance in the Exodus the power of God not only for the delivery of physical freedom but the delivery of the soul. Indeed, there were signs and omens, there were indicators. If you were following the political movements of the day, there would be things you could focus on that could potentially create the same kind of fear foreboding and powerlessness that if we're focusing on even today, we'll do the exact same thing. I think about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 in the lion's den. Do we really think that Daniel was not aware that this law was being written? Of course he's aware. The Bible makes it very clear that after the law forbidding prayer to anyone except the king is written that Daniel goes and opens his window and he prays to the same God he's been praying to three times a day. Daniel is not wrought up in finding support to deliver himself by the hand of man or political maneuvering. Daniel is in a position where he realizes that his liberty is being taken away and there is very little he can do about it. And yet he turns back to his God, not in in fear and foreboding, although any human being would have to face that, knowing that the outcome was a den of hungry lions. And yet in this ever-growing sense of confidence and trust that deliverance in the past Will be sufficient for the present and the future. And if there is no deliverance, the peace that passes all understanding will be enough. When I think about conspiracies in the Bible, I think about Paul, who has been taken into the garrison there in Jerusalem. And there is a conspiracy not to eat bread or water until he's been assassinated. The interesting thing about this conspiracy is that Paul is not worried about its experience or fearful and uh, uncertain about his provision being held in the hands of God. When it comes to his knowledge, he directs the one, in this case a nephew, to go talk to the commander. But it's not Paul searching out the underhanded secret happenings of the dark side that delivers him. God brings to him the knowledge of something that needs to be done. He allows the information to pass on to those who can do it. Interestingly enough, in that moment, it, are the, it is the secular Romans who are, is Paul's deliverer, yes, by God's hand. What I want us to understand is that the Bible explains every secret action? What is a conspiracy, a secret plan by, a, by which a group is to do something unlawful or harmful? The Bible does explain that we're in the midst of this colossal conspiracy where the devil is constantly trying to take away our liberty, our life, our freedom to worship. God does not call us to focus on those things. He has revealed that they're happening. He's revealed that they will happen. He's calling us to a constant sense that our protection and our provision is in him. So why does it matter in the 21st century? And that is because in the last 50 or 60 years where American culture especially has had the privilege of indulgence, relative ease, comfort, convenience it appears that the church itself has fallen to a different kind of conspiracy that nobody's really talking about. And that is, without persecution and without challenge and opposition, the church itself has been immobilized by the blessings of God, underutilized, wrongly employed, wrongly engaged, and wrongly focused. Nobody's talking about that conspiracy. It's not that absolutely nobody is, but far too few. In Seventh-day Adventist churches today, it'd be far better for us to understand that the stealth of Lucifer himself, now Satan, has been on hand to redirect the blessings of God into the cursings for God's people. Yes, this is a conspiracy nobody's talking about. This morning, however, I want to especially address the idea as to whether or not this biological uh, difficulty that we're in the midst of, this uh, virulent moment in regards to sickness. Is it the beginning of the little time of trouble, as I've heard some ask, or is it something else? Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 21. Are we on the cusp of greater things? Well, perhaps we are, But I think it's important that we understand where we are in regards to Jesus. Actually, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. I think it's much more important that we understand where we are in regards to the spiritual dynamics that are going on in our country. Matthew chapter 24. I'll start with verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple was going away when his disciples came up to him. And they pointed out the temple buildings. And he said to them, do you see all these things? Truly I say unto you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on Mount Olive, so some time has elapsed, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of your age? Our age. So, friends, it's very normal for the human mind to want to know the future. Jesus basically said to them on the way out of the temple, this is all going to be destroyed. This is all that's on their mind until they can get across the Kidron Valley, and perhaps it's eventide. We're not sure. But they sit down and Jesus is requested to reveal to them when these things will be and what are the signs. What they didn't know is that in the very asking of their question, they were looking at something that was typical of the signs of the final destruction when they were asking about signs about the destruction of Jerusalem. So what happens in the experience with Jerusalem becomes the type or an illustration, a little precursor as it were, to the trauma that will come on the people of God in their ultimate time of trouble and their ultimate deliverance. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to him, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Luke adds pestilence in his account. Verse 8 is probably the most salient or important verse for our launching off this morning. It says, but all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Birth pangs. This morning, I want to confidently assert to you that God always intends to make certain His people have a chance to attend to the coming danger. God does not sneak up on the world. He does not sneak up on His people. The whole point of everything Jesus was saying in the book of Matthew chapter 24, the signs of the end, is a wake-up call. It is an alertness moment. It is a reminder that life on this earth is temporary and that even if we're living with peace in our times and prosperity in the moment there will be difficult moments that are coming upon us. God never intends to destroy, he intends to save, so the things that come upon his people are wake-up calls. Now I want to focus for a moment on having babies, not that I know a whole lot about it, but I would say this, this is the father of four, I've been there for the experience of every single one through almost the entire thing except number four. Number four was one of those that got a little more medical assistance than they wanted me into the room to observe. But I do know something about how it works. This baby inside of mama starts moving. It's amazing when you can feel that there's life inside, another life. Eventually, uh, this baby gets so large that, every movement creates discomfort we don't know how much for the baby but we certainly know for the mother every once in a while the mother will begin to feel the body getting ready for deliverance these labor pains these contractions every mother that's never done it before also understands that there's a false labor and a false type of contractions that can go on are they without merit, are they without meaning no, but are they the real deliverance moment sometimes not. But eventually there comes a time when most mothers or mothers-to-be have a sense that something serious is going on here and this is only going to get worse. The contraction comes, the contraction releases. Eventually those contractions come in such repetitive and forceful dynamics that there can be no doubt that we're headed towards the final deliverance here. But along the way, there are wake-up moments that say you need to focus on what's coming. What we're looking at right now in the moment of this 21st century pandemic in which the whole world, much of the world at least, is in a pause moment, shut down, you might say, at least economically in so many ways. Attentive, you might say, in so many ways, wondering what's going on. What we're looking at right now is in the very beginning of Jesus' presentation on what we should expect. The problem is for a world-loving church or a world-loving Christian, this kind of trauma creates all kinds of fear. God never intended that the anticipation of deliverance should create fear, never. Focusing on conspiracies creates a tremendous amount of fear. This entire series that I'm preaching, Confidence in Crisis, is about allowing us to understand that everything that's coming, God understood was coming. And there's certain things we should be focusing on and certain things we shouldn't. When this message is done, I hope you have a very clear understanding that COVID-19 need not be the beginning of the end, but it ought to be the end of a wrong way of living and the beginning of a right way of living in regards to the great privilege of representing Christ in the final days. COVID-19 is a biological crisis. It's a public health issue. At this moment in time, COVID-19 has attached to it very few, I would almost say, in the modern media, mainstream media especially, almost zero dynamics of spiritual crisis that's coming, and what we all need to understand is that it is the spiritual crisis at the end of the age that is the deepest crisis, and the rest of the crises that come along are to bring people to an attentiveness that a greater crisis is potentially upon them, and that is the loss of their own soul. So I want to take a moment and I want to remind ourselves of the dynamics that are around the final crisis. I'd like to take a moment and talk for, about some of the crises that are brewing under the surface. Let's talk about global warming for a moment. If I were to ask a group of Americans, global warming, is it happening, is it not? For the last 20 years, there's been a huge spectrum of Americans that would deny that it's happening. However, beginning with George Bush, we begin to see that even the politicians of the more conservative sort began to recognize something was going on. For some, the whole issue is a political red herring around which our rights can be taken away. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. But is it also possible that God is allowing something of the sort to happen, whether it's caused by man or not? Is there not a phenomena that is growing on the psyche of the general public that somehow we are ruining this little home with this, as one person described, the atmosphere around the earth, it's like a little shellacking, not terribly thick and perhaps more fragile than we understood. Writing and selected messages Book 2, page 52, the author states, Satan is working in the atmosphere. He is poisoning the atmosphere, and here we are dependent upon God for our lives, our present and eternal lives. And being in the position that we are, we need to be wide awake and wholly devoted, wholly converted, wholly consecrated to God, but we seem to sit as though we were paralyzed. God of heaven, wake us up. Most of us have heard about a meeting that was initially planned for May 14. It's now been bumped out to October. Is it a conspiracy to rob the world of its liberty and freedom? Yes, probably. Is God caught off guard and its happening? Should it be more a wake-up moment to us that we are moving towards the dissolution of liberty and the freedom to work while it's day and the night's coming in which no man can work? Or should we be involved in political debates and be behind the scenes dividing and destroying our credibility by trying to determine whether or not it's a real issue or not? Satan is working in the atmosphere, Ellen White wrote. He's poisoning the atmosphere, and here we are dependent upon God for our lives and our present and eternal well-being. Friends, it doesn't matter. The truth of the matter is, is that God, like in the age of the Israelites, is not going to step in and intervene. He's going to allow the birth pangs of earth's demise and deliverance of his people to move forward. In the process of moving forward, should our focus be on averting or dialoguing or debating over whether or not it's a political conspiracy? Or should we be moving forward with the observation that no matter where its origin is, there is a prompt in it for us to be about our Father's business? Writing in the fifth testimony, we need to stay our faith upon God, for there is just before us a time that will try men's souls... Christ upon the Mount of Olives rehearsed the fearful judgments that were to precede his second coming. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation shall rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now you need to know while I'm reading from the fifth testimony, she just did two things. She combined Matthew and Luke together. Matthew does not mention pestilences, but Luke does. But she's combined them together in this quote. And listen how she finishes it out. While these prophecies received a partial fulfillment at the destruction of Jerusalem, they have a more direct application to the last days. There are many, even of those engaged in this movement for Sunday enforcement, who are blinded to the results which will follow this action. They do not see that they are striking directly against religious liberty. Two points I want to make from this reference in the fifth testimonies. Number one is I want us to understand what she says, that what happened to Jerusalem is a partial fulfillment. They have a more direct application to the last days. So here's the question I have for you. When God was going to destroy Jerusalem, was it his intent simply to destroy everybody? Was it just the final end of judgment? Was God looking to let blood run in the streets? Was the Romans full of revenge? It was a horrendous attempt to take Jerusalem. Josephus tells us how in the final moments... The Jews had held themselves up in the temple and they got up in some of the higher parts and they poured boiling oil down on the Romans. You can imagine how angry they were when they finally got inside. You can be sure that there was no mercy left in the hearts of the Romans. Was it God's desire to destroy the people? Or did Jesus give them a warning? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, pay attention, get ready to go. The truth of the matter is nobody really expected uh, the Roman armies to withdraw, but when they did, Jesus had told them, get out. Now, we've had at least three very significant birth pangs in the last 20 years. We've seen people fly airplanes into the Twin Towers. I want to assure you, as a pastor for over 30 years, on the Sabbath following 9-11, the church had an awful lot more people in it than it had before. Yes, we've seen trauma come upon the face of this nation, and it's been a wake-up call, a pang, as it were, to the pains of evil as it wraps itself around life and liberty. The question is, in that moment, is it simply a response of fear, or is there an honest searching of soul and a moment to reflect on who I should be, where I should be going, what the future holds, and am I actually a creation of God, potentially able to be redeemed by God, praise his name? Or is this simply me needing God on a stick? Me, the puppeteer, God, the one moving according to my making. And when my equilibrium gets upset, I run to the church for a measure of reassurance. Preaching this sermon this morning is just a little bit dangerous because at the end of the day, My message is that God is giving us another birth pang, but it's not the moment of destruction, which is a dangerous thing for some people to hear because some are going to go out in comfort and ease, not worrying about what's coming in the future, and they're going to say, the preacher said, this isn't the end. Well... Let me make certain of one thing. I don't possess a prophetic gift strong enough to say that I know how quickly the next birth pangs are going to come. But I'm here to tell you today, in an environment in which there is virtually no spiritual discussion about this trauma, I can assure you it is not the end. It is a birth pang. In 2008, when the financial institutions just about fell down in this country, another serious birth pang. We could have been in a moment of a true Great Depression, Instead, by governmental intervention and the hand of God, the four angels holding back the winds of strife, we were given a chance to go into a new phase of economic prosperity. For what purpose? Simply so that we become more sold in sin, more capitalistic, more materialistic? No. It was a wake-up call so that we might come to a moment and say, what would God have me do with the stewardship of my time, my talent, my treasure? And now here we are in a new birth pang, stronger than the rest, because this birth pang is now global in a way that the previous two I've mentioned were not global. This is a birth pang that is not only affecting individual liberty and freedom, it's affecting education, it's affecting economies, it's obviously affecting people's well-being, their ability to live and breathe and be healthy. This birth pang has a greater intensity about it than any we've had before. But is this the moment in which the birth pangs come one right after another? Or will this be an opportunity for the whole world, warned as it were for the first time in three generations, to wake up for your redemption draws nigh? I think it's important for us to understand that in this secular culture, there are certain things missing from the prophetic playlist that gives us confidence that we might be given another chance to go out and be serious about the angels, the three angels and the fourth angel. Writing in the Desire of Ages, this is what the Spirit of Prophecy says. After Jesus had given the signs of his coming, Christ said, when you see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Take heed, watch, and pray. God, this is a beautiful sentence, God has always given men warnings of coming judgments. Those who had faith in his message for their time and who acted out their faith and obedience to his commandments escaped the judgments that fell upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. So if this was the beginning of the end, what would be the fate of all those people who have pursued wickedness with abandon but had in their past heard the voice of the Spirit saying, Come unto me. If we move through this moment... Without a wake-up call, what kind of God would we be serving? This global pang of sorrow in anticipation of deliverance is nothing less than God giving men a warning so that they can escape the judgments that will fall upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. What we ought to be praying for as a people, as Christians, especially as Seventh-day Adventists, Is that our own heart would be prepared that we might be the instrument of invitation to know a God of mercy? Writing in another place, she says, Before that day, God warns men of what is coming. He has always given men warning of judgment. Some believed the warning and obeyed God, these escaped the judgments that fell upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. What are the birth pangs' purpose? They are to allow people to find their way into a relationship with Christ that becomes a shelter in the time of storm. I want to remind you of several things that yet to need to be involved in regards to the birth pangs that come just before deliverance. Number one, it's important for us to remember Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bibles open there, look at verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. You say that's already happened. Of course it's already happened because in every generation Satan has his false workers in the form of ministers and priests. But I'm here to tell you before Christ comes again, the intensification of these signs, the intensification of these birth pangs, will be great. Friends, we are living in an extremely secular age. When the twin towers came down, we had a few preachers who were Willing to say these were judgments of God, but they were hushed, they were shamed, they were scorned into silence. In this moment, you'll notice this is a largely absent narrative from the media dialogue. But there will come a day when something like COVID-19 in conjunction with all of the other birth pangs that are happening, which are bringing trauma on the face of the earth, warnings to wake people up, when you'll hear this narrative develop again. In other words, as Ellen White says in early writings, page 261, there is going to be a revival of religion in America. There will be a false revival and a true revival. This is not going on right now. It needs to go on. When it does go on there'll be many swept away by spiritual manifestation that's not built on the word of God and there'll be many whose lives are full of the Holy Spirit who are used to save another brand plucked out of the fire before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness has not been witnessed since apostolic times the spirit and power of God will be poured out on his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from the churches in which the love of this world is supplanted love for God. This is an amazing moment. But she also writes that God has on his children among the nominal, among the nominal Adventists and the fallen churches. Oh, take heart and pay attention, folks. She identifies two groups of people in which they are still true people of God, nominal Adventists and the fallen churches. Satan knows this, she writes, and before the loud cry of the third angel is given, he raises an excitement in these religious bodies. So there is a true and a false revival that goes on at the end of time. We also know that in Ellen White's day, there was a moment in which in the state of California, they came to a place where some of these, these uh, understandings at the end of the time were enacted. She wrote in 1882... The time is coming when we cannot sell at any price. The decree will soon go forth prohibiting men to buy or sell of any man save him that hath the mark of the beast. Then she writes in 1882, we came near having this realized in California a short time since. But this was only the threatening of the blowing of the four winds. As of yet they are held by the four angels. And then she makes this interesting statement, five words, which I'm afraid are all too true and pertinent for the day in which we're living. We are not just ready. I want you to think for an honest moment about our families and our churches. Could the same thing be said today? Is it God's desire to sweep us away in an unready moment? No, I think we could confidently say on April 11th, 2020, that we are not just ready either. There is a work yet to be done, she writes, and then the angel will be bidden to let go that the four winds may blow upon the earth. Friends, the message I want you to understand as I progress through further things is this, is that while this is a serious and sober wake-up call, there will be some who will only see it as another minor blip when it's over, and they'll press on with their intentionality of becoming more citizens of this earth. There are Adventists, nominal Adventists as well, for which the same will be true, but there are also people looking earnestly unto heaven who are wanting to run into a real Christian who knows a living Christ is filled with a living Holy Spirit, and is ready to give a living word of hope. It's not difficult, she writes in evangelism, page 604, for the evil angels to represent both saints and sinners who have died and make these representations more visible to human eyes. Now, before I read the rest of this quote, I had a young man send me a movie trailer for a Disney movie called Soul. I don't know if any of you have seen it. But the spirit of prophecy is very clear that before the end, the manifestation, the spiritualistic dynamic of supposedly the dead coming back to life will be in the ascendancy. Well, I'll tell you, friends, it is in the ascendancy. We know that. Even from the days when I was a boy sitting around watching way too much television, We moved from a a, a relatively benign innocence in the 70s and the 60s up into a very perverse, perverse, and you could say conspiratorial bent to twist people's minds around the dark side of the metaphysical, of the spiritual world. But there is still a benignness to this, this Disney movie soul about a a music teacher, a musician that that dies and, and lives on as some kind of disembodied spirit who wants to come back to earth. It's about how much I know of it because I watched the trailer that was sent to me by a young person. Yes, there is still a benignness around this dynamic of the dead not really dying and coming back to life. You see, friends, it's going to intensify and become much more of an issue with the deceptive power that will sweep away the masses. These manifestations, she writes, will be more frequent and the developments of a more startling character will appear as we near the close of time. I tell you, friends, there are more startling dynamics to be revealed in the future. Surely, COVID-19 is a birth pang. It's a wake-up moment. The question is, will we? Is it the end, or is it potentially a beginning? May it be a beginning for each of us. Interestingly, writing in testimonies to the church, she says that these final movements will not come until Babylon is fallen. And she states that Babylon's fall is not yet complete. Testimonies for the Church, written compiled at least in 1904. She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. How is this done? By forcing men to accept a spurious Sabbath. Writing in great controversy. Not until this condition shall be reached and the union of the church with the world shall be fully accomplished throughout Christendom will the fall of Babylon be complete. The change is a progressive one and the perfect fulfillment of Revelation 14.8 is yet in the future. Friends, it is still in the future. That's good news for us because it gives us opportunity and time to go about our Father's business, to search our own heart and invite Jesus to come in, to be that powerful, purifying presence that brings peace and hope. She also goes on to state that as the end approaches, the testimonies of God's servants will become more decided and more powerful. If ever there was a day in which this needs to be happened, let COVID 19 and the birth pangs wake us up so that we move into this phase of God's servants, his ministers, his elders, and his deacons, his deaconesses, his mothers, and his fathers. These mothers and fathers in Israel allow their testimonies to become more and more powerful. There are a number of dynamics, there's not been a shaking yet. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit has not come yet. With the time, the little time of trouble, this little time of trouble is either a result of or coincides specifically with the latter rain being poured out. And this creates a new spiritual warfare that has not been on the face of the earth for the last 500 years or at least for the last few hundred years, begun again in the days of reformation. There are a variety of elements of the spiritual dynamic that really are the issues that shape the time of the end that haven't even made it onto the stage of serious discussion yet. That's how with confidence I can say to you this morning, COVID-19 in the very beginning part of Jesus' warning is a birth pang. And when this birth pang is over, we don't know what to expect. I think there is a great potential that we might see the fulfillment of some of the things she said about labor unions. We don't know what this is going to do to the world economic system. But she talked about labor unions. Everybody's wondered how that's going to work in this day of right-to-work legislation. But I'm here to assure you today, there is still plenty of potential for exactly what she said to fall into place. But the end is not yet. Praise the Lord. What should we be doing? That's how I want to focus in the last little bit of this message. We should be strengthening our faith. She writes in testimony to the church, if the believers in this truth are not sustained by their faith in these comparatively peaceful days, what will uphold them when the grand test comes and the decree goes forth against all those who will not worship the beast in the image? This solemn period is not far off. Instead of being weak and irresolute, the people of God should be gathering strength and courage for the time of trouble. Well, how do you do that? I want to explain that to you. God never intended that we come up quaking and quivering to our modern Kadesh Barnea. When we get to the place where we can see the promised land, we're supposed to be like Caleb and Joshua, where we can say, if God be with us, who can be against us? We're not to be afraid to go out and minister on behalf of the lost and declare with the beauty of Christ that there are better things coming but that trouble comes before. It's important for us to realize that it's time for us to wake up. We should be training our youth during this period of time. We shall have to stand before magistrates to answer for our allegiance to the law of God, to make known the reasons of our faith. And she says, and the youth should understand these things. I think inside the Adventist church, no, I know. I've heard it said. You have to remember, I came into this church as a teenager. My parents did not lead me in, at least not directly, indirectly, by placing me in a church school against my will. But I've actually heard people say that talking about the time of trouble with our youth is, they didn't use these words, but they meant it, really a form of spiritual abuse. Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, if you talk about it the wrong way, that's exactly the truth. But if you teach them in the power of a God who has delivered throughout the ages and will deliver in this moment as well, the great honor and privilege of representing Him, whether it's walking into the to the lion's den or to the fiery furnace or to the dungeon or whatever it might be. Our young people should be understanding these things because they will play a pivotal role, hopefully. What a glorious thing. I think of that song, Faith of Our Fathers. And it talks in one of its verses about how glorious would be the youth's experience if they could have an experience like that of their faithful fathers that have gone before them in sacrifice and in duty. If you want to be ready, for what's coming. If you want this to be the beginning of something better in your spiritual life, then, then don't do this. She writes, many will look away from present duties, present comfort, and blessings, and will be borrowing trouble in regard to the future crisis. They'll be making a time of trouble beforehand, and we will receive no grace for any such anticipated troubles. The Lord never designed that we should worry about the future. What a beast of a dad I would be if I told my children something terrible was coming and left them with the idea that I wouldn't be there to go through them with it. What a terrible father I would be if I gave them a boatload of fear and concern and let it ruin every day of their lives. And yet there are Seventh-day Adventists who have done the same thing. Part of it is because they've anchored their hopes in their lives, living as a worldling. And they have no spiritual confidence, no spiritual faith, no love for God, no desire to see and walk through that heavenly threshold. It's absolutely important. We need to wake up. A time of trouble such as was not since, since there was a nation is right upon us. And we're like the sleeping virgins. We need to awaken. Ask the Lord to place underneath us, I love this, the everlasting arms and carry us through the time of trouble before us. Friends, do you need to be afraid if you're in your father's arms and he's carrying you through the time of trouble before you? The nations are in unrest. Times and perplexity are upon us. Men's hearts are failing them for fear of the things that are coming on the earth. But those who believe in God will hear his voice amidst the storm saying, it is I, do not be afraid. That's a story that perplexes me. Jesus is up on the mountain praying for his disciples. They're down in a boat complaining about the fact that they didn't let him make him king. So he's praying for them and they're complaining about him. And he comes walking on the water that night. Immediately, because they've been digging a deep spiritual hole for themselves, like many Christians still do today, talking faithlessness, talking pride and self-importance, they are disposed to see in their deliverer a demon. And Jesus, instead of allowing them to wallow in a self-made moment of spiritual darkness, as soon as he hears them shrieking out, it's a ghost, he calls out above the roar of the sea, don't be afraid, it's me. I'm afraid that as a human being, my natural propensity, no, I know, would be to allow those men to experience a few wiggle moments for all that negativity they created in that spiritual cloud that was hovering above them and keeping them in a spiritual fog. But that's not Jesus. Jesus cries out and says, it's me. Don't be afraid. If you want to be ready, if you want a new beginning in this moment of COVID 19, when the birth pang passes, you need to realize there is a preparation. We are to put God's Word in our hearts. Keep a pocket Bible with you, she writes in the Review and Herald 1905. And as you work, improve every opportunity to commit to memory its precious promises. Several times a day, precious golden moments should be consecrated to prayer and the study of the Bible. If it's only to commit a text to memory, that spiritual life can exist in the soul. Servants of God are prepare no set speech to present when brought before their faith. Their preparations to be made day by day, treasuring up in their heart the precious truths of God's word, feeding upon the teaching of Christ, and through prayer strengthening their faith. When brought into trial, the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance the very truths that will reach their hearts. Listen, friends, the older you get, the less you remember. The busier you get, the less you remember. But I'm here to tell you today, it's not your job to keep an absolute human memory bank in place. You need to know you're to stick it in, and at the right moment, God's going to bring it out. You may not be able to remember what you once knew. You can't call back like you once did. Don't be afraid, friends. It's not going to be your brilliant brain that delivers you in the end. It's going to be the presence of Jesus. We're to control the moral powers. Now, this is a big one. Instead of handing our kids iPads and more time on the computer, we need to be realizing that if there's a conspiracy going on to steal our children, it's creating appetites for the interests of this age, the tantalizing, scintillating, digital, virtual experience. The ability to give a reason for our faith is good. It's a good accomplishment, but if truth does not go deeper than this, the soul will never be saved. She goes on to write, the right. The right. The heart must be purified from all moral defilement. If you realize that it's a duty to exercise control over their thoughts and imaginations, it's difficult to keep the undisciplined mind fixed upon profitable subjects. But the thoughts are not prop. If the thoughts are not properly employed, religion can't flourish in the soul. I want you to think about that. If you're a parent listening to me right now, if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt or uncle, a brother or sister, if the thoughts are not properly employed, religion cannot flourish in the soul. What does that say for the heart and mind of a young person who is constantly being fed from the polluted streams of this world? The mind, she writes, must be preoccupied with sacred and eternal interests. This is hardly what's happening for most. If you want to be prepared, you need to realize there are people in the past that represent our example. Enoch is one. Enoch is a representative, she writes in sermons and talks, 1886, who will be upon the earth when Christ shall come, who will be translated to heaven. There's something about Enoch and his exposure to the world, which is worthy of us reflecting on. I don't have time to do it right now. If we want to be preparing for the future, we need to be remembering the past, she writes. We have nothing to fear for the future, except we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and is teaching in our past history. In reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, praise God. As I see what the Lord has wrought, I'm filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as our leader. But what does this do for a life or a church or a school where there's never been any spiritual stretching? where there's never been any spiritual risk-taking, where the prompt of God is not followed, but the conservative dynamic of a board is in place, and the collective lack of faith is what's operative. God is actually calling us to take some risk, to put ourselves on the line. That's what creates faith. And when you look back and see how he filled in the gap, then you're filled with astonishment and confidence in Christ as a leader. Serious reflection. Another element that we should have involved, especially with this time, if ever there was a time she writes in manuscript 87, if ever there was a time when serious reflection becomes, is becomes everyone who fears God, it's now. When personal piety is essential, the inquiry should be made. What am I and what is my work and mission in this time? On which side am I working, Christ's side or the enemy's side? Carl Sandburg, in writing of Lincoln, talks about the fact that he had solitude. Quietness. He was lonely. It was in these moments when some of the stretching of his, the personal fabric of his being, the, the broadening of his sense of destiny, the ambition of something to make the world a better place, to transform and transcend just the here and the now, just existing. We're to be faithful in our tithes and offering. There are to be calls for fasting and prayer. I don't want to pass by tithe and offering. You need to know, I'm praying that 2020 will be the best financial year of the church yet, and I'm inviting any of the thousands of people that will watch this service to do the same thing. If ever there was a time for us to start drawing our money out of the places where we can watch it lose 30% of its value in a moment and start investing it in the cause of God, it's today. Maybe we don't need all of those elements that are bringing the media into our life, into our homes. We're to be setting aside times to fast and pray now and onward till the close of time. She writes and counsels on diets and food. The people of God should more earnest, more wide awake, not trusting their own wisdom, but in the wisdom of their leader. They should set aside days for fasting and prayer. Entire absence from food may not be required, but they should eat sparingly of the most simple food. What else should we be doing if we want to be ready? We should be working for the cities, she writes. There's a work yet to be done. And then the angels will be bidden to let go, that the four winds may blow upon the earth. That will be a decisive time for God's children, a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Now, she writes in 5th Testimony 152, now is our opportunity to work. Why is COVID-19 a birth pang and not the end? Because there's so much work yet to be done. God's people are to be out warning a world that there is a refuge. And one other thing at least that we need to be done. We need to oppose Sunday laws. All who would in that evil day fiercely serve God according to the dictates of conscience will need courage, firmness, and a knowledge of God and His Word. For those who are true to God will be persecuted, their motives will be impugned, their best efforts misrepresented, and their names cast out as evil. She says we are not to worry about the latter rain. All we have to do, don't you love this? This lady is a mother in Israel. All we have to do is keep the vessel clean and right side up, prepared for the reception of the heavenly rain, and keep praying, let the latter rain come into my vessel. Let the light of the glorious angel, which unites the third angel, shine upon me. Give me a part in the work. Let me sound the proclamation. Let me be a collaborator with Jesus. Thus seeking God, let me tell you, he's fitting you up all the time, giving you grace. Friends, you need to understand, there's at least one conspiracy I didn't mention. It's the conspiracy to destroy Jesus. He knew all about it. And he wasn't warning his apostles of how they could get away. As a matter of fact, he knew that Judas would betray him for silver. And on the night when he did, while he did make it aware that he knew all about Judas all along, he didn't go into all the details And that night when he could have been running away back to Galilee, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Yes, there was a conspiracy to destroy Christ. Yes, it was understood through the eternal ages. Yes, it was prophesied in myriad prophecies. Jesus did not focus on it, nor did he direct his disciples to focus on it. Instead, he focused on the great work of salvation that was before him, and he called his people to pray. Yes, friends, when the Sunday laws are enacted, that's God's sign. Get out of the cities. Eventually, there's going to be a moment when we have to get out of the little villages, but in preparing for Christ's coming, we're never told to save money or save food. What we're called upon to do is to focus intently on the spiritual preparation of the world, our families, and yea, our own lives, remembering what God has done in the past. I have no doubt... With all of the serious secularism that's in place and the absence of spiritual debate that's even going on in our society. COVID-19 is not the beginning of the little time of trouble. It is a birth pang. It is a wake-up moment. It is not the end. It is a sign that the end is coming. And how rapidly the rest of the birth pangs will come afterwards, I know not. But I do know this. When this birth pang passes, it will either have been just a little blip as we've been desensitized to the dynamic, divine, wake-up moments of Christ, or it will have been a new beginning for God's people. We should not be shunning the assembling together, as we have the power to do, especially when we're robbed from the privilege of doing it. God is calling us today to enter into a different kind of experience, an experience that focuses on His power as a deliverer, not the devious, dark acts of the unlawful ones in our society. God is calling us to remember what he's done in the past, to hide his word in our heart, to care about those who don't know that they can be under his banner and his banner over them is love. There are all kinds of people that don't know Christ is going to carry them in their own arms through the time of trouble. Some of us have forgotten if ever there was a moment to withdraw from the world, to not be assembling with them virtually or in presence in the places they assemble, it's today. He's calling us To know that he has planned for and provided for his people as trouble comes. And they are not to have their hearts failing them for fear. Yes, indeed, there is more trouble around the corner. But may we take advantage of the opportunities given to us when this birth pang passes. And may we be more resolute to focus on the things of heaven and those who have not yet met the author of their salvation. May God help us as we move towards this end. And may we take more confidence that there's a new beginning for his church and a bright and glorious destiny for all those who align themselves with the giving of these three angels' messages. May God bless us. May we serve him with all of our heart. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now as we go forward in our worship service. May we be faithful to you, unafraid because our lives are totally turned over to you. Guide us now and bless us in the rest of this day. May we certainly take the time for serious reflection. If our hearts are troubled, Lord, because they're not right with you, I pray may we find a private place and give them over to you completely. And then may our vessel be kept upright and may the rain fall in it and the light shine in it. And may we know that you'll make us ready when we need to be ready as we daily choose to be ready. I'm praying this now in Jesus' name, amen.